Welcome to the Playing the Game podcast with your hosts, Brock White and Cody Ransom. This podcast is the place for all things baseball, hunting, and entrepreneurship. These two guys have put in the work and have the stories and advice to back it up. Brock is a longtime business owner, and Cody played pro ball for over 18 years. Driven deep to left field. There it goes. See ya. A long home run for Cody Ransom. The one thing that brings these two guys together is hunting. Babe Ruth said it best. Never allow the fear of striking out to keep you from playing the game. This is the Playing the Game podcast. Presented by Rolly White RV. Yo, welcome, man. We got a crowd here today. Live audience. Live audience on the road <laughs> podcast. Welcome back, playing the game, guys. And we got Cody. He's over here playing the game. Hey, what's happening? We got a special guest today. We actually do. How long? We've been trying to get Lonnie on for a while, right? It's been. We've been trying for a while to get Lonnie on. I think yeah. since we started, we put our feelers out. Lonnie is a busy man. We're very blessed to have him here today. Lonnie Workman, he is, are you the GM of PSC? Is that what your title is? No, officially I'm vice president of sales, marketing, and product development. You know, that sounds All pretty high important. up there. Sounds like you're product doing a lot. Of, you got a lot of hat at, hats there. Yeah, I try to be a jack of all trades. So I do what I can. My specialty's in sales, but... By default, I, I handle marketing. They report to me. And product development, I don't develop it. I just kind of tell them what the market's looking for and what the dealers and consumers are telling me, and I really relay that information to the team. There you go. So, so they handle everything. I just, I guess I'm kind of the maestro to try to keep everything headed in the right direction. Yes, sir. Um, Lonnie, where did you come, where did you grow up? Backwoods, West Virginia. I would never have guessed that. I would, yeah. I wouldn't say <laughs> said, yeah. I would never have thought you're East Coast. I, for some reason, thought you were, came from out here. So how did that – you grew up in West Virginia. Yeah, I'm born and raised in West Virginia. And I started squirrel hunting with my dad when I was about five. With a bow uh, or a gun? No, no, that would have been with a uh, with a four ten. You know, at five oh, years old, it's a pretty good kick. But my dad, uh, my dad was insistent that I learned to shoot a gun very early, very early on. I got my first bow probably when I was about twelve. Awesome. So it was the bare white tail. My dad got yeah. two of them. For me. So you know, draw went, draw length was too long. The poundage was too heavy, but I made it work the best I could. Oh yeah. Do you remember your sights you had on that thing? Um, yeah, I believe it was the Cobra sights. Oh, you know, that yeah, was, Cobra sights. That, yeah, it was. they were copper, I believe, and they weren't even painted. We would take fingernail polish and paint them different colors. <laughs> yes, I uh, remember that. We were shooting wasp broadheads back in those days. Wasp? So. Like, what, is, yeah. what did it look like? A... Yeah, you know, I guess it kind of looked like a muzzy wood today. Okay. You know? It's uh, pretty basic. I mean, we weren't real sophisticated in our setups back in those days. It was just kind of grip and rip and have fun. Yeah. Uh, my dad wasn't a bow hunter. He was more into rifles. He was a, a union iron worker, so he didn't get a he didn't get a lot of time to hunt. 
and he didn't have a lot of time for extracurricular activities in the evening. So he was more into rifle hunting. So my childhood memories with my father was, you know, fishing in the creeks of West Virginia as a kid, and then we would go hunting on the weekends when hunting season was in. Yep. Um, so do you uh, play any sports in high school or? You know, I tried. Um, I tried hard, but I'm not the greatest athlete. So, you know, growing up, I lived in West Virginia until I was about 14, and then we moved to Orlando, Florida. So a little bit of a culture shock. For sure. Uh, you know, obviously I played, you know, I played baseball, I played basketball, I played football, and my best sport was wrestling. So I wrestled throughout high school. That's good. Cool. I tried I played a little bit of football in Florida, but I just, from an athletic standpoint, I wasn't uh, up to speed with most of the guys. You know, literally, figuratively. I think it's pretty cool that you just mentioned that you played all the sports. So, like, yeah, you know, back when I was growing up, probably same with Cody. Like, you grew up playing all the sports. Mm-hmm. Like, you would have kids in the neighborhood that weren't necessarily on the high school team, but they knew how to play. So, if you had like a softball game or whatever, everyone knew how to play. Um, it, you just don't see that. Did. You don't see that it anymore. Yeah, totally. Because during school, you always had your seasons, and everyone is always playing. Yep. Well, you know, when I lived in West Virginia, I lived in a town of about five thousand people, and we had a factory in town. It was Kaiser Aluminum, um, but it was a really tight knit community. I mean, everybody went to the high school football games on the weekend. We'd go to the basketball games. We would travel to go see the high school basketball and football teams play, you know, back in the 70s, early 80s, that was just the way of life for us. And it's sad to see these kids today either not play sports at all or they just focus on one sport. I remember listening to an interview with Donald Ryan, and he talked about, you know, how he played multiple sports when he was a kid, and it developed him as a better athlete. So... You know, I see a lot of these kids today focusing on one sport. No. I think you need to open up a little bit. Yeah, my kid's uh, 10 years old, and I see parents already, like, choosing their sport for their child. They're going to go all in on club, and I'm like, what do you, how do you, how do you know? Like, some of these yeah. kids don't even know if they're going to be college athletes till they're probably high school. What do you think, Cody? Yeah, I mean, Without a doubt. My son, played travel, <laughs> my son played travel baseball. Um he liked basketball better, but he was a much better baseball player. That's usually how and it works. He got, he got burned out on it. I mean, he stopped playing for a little while, stopped playing travel, but still played high school baseball. Decided to try, you know, football his junior year of high school. And before the first game of the season, ends up breaking his femur. He's going to be the starting outside linebacker. So, yeah, he didn't even make it to the first game of his junior year. But, you know, I give him credit. His senior year, he went. He played football again, yeah. even with having that issue with his leg. And, you know, he was a good a good high school baseball player, played a small college for a little while. And now he wants to be in the music. He wants to write music. But I think kids need to play sports. Renaissance. I think uh, they need to experience life. And well, you, you learn to win and lose. Yeah, I see these parents now. Like, they don't want to teach the kids losing. And I'm like, no, they need to learn. They need to feel that. Mm-hmm. Like, And I, I remember this church, 
we had our church set up, we had softball. And, like, they didn't want to keep score. And then they didn't want to run rule these kids or nothing. I'm like, no, you run rule them. <laughs> they need to learn. When you, when you don't practice and you don't do all these things, these are the consequences. You get run well, rule. You get smoked. You deal, yeah. with, you deal with that throughout life, whether it's your career, whether it's a girl you want to date, whatever. They're, competition is part of life. We can act like it's not, but it is, no matter what realm you're in. So I think learning those lessons at an early age, I don't like to lose. Yeah. And I learned that by playing sports. I don't like to lose. Yeah, that's, um, that's not a great feeling. and definitely makes you work harder. And that's a good thing to transition on in the business, huh? Yes. I mean, we learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. Oh, yes. Sometimes, uh, I mean, failure is a tough pill to swallow, but you just have to do it and learn from it. So, yeah, I I, I think sports for kids are important. So, all I know is when I moved to Florida and tried to play football, it was not like playing football in backwoods West Virginia, though. It's a little bit different. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, it's awful. It was awful. The the bigger boys, faster, bigger, stronger, more pull yeah. to pull from. Yeah, we had like five or six guys at my high school end up going like Division One, getting uh, college scholarships, and it was uh, yeah, it was just uh, it's a different a different game once I got down there. But it was nice because I grew up in West Virginia as a kid, where you know you didn't have to come in until the streetlights came on. Yeah. It, when I was nine and ten years old, my dad would let me go catfishing at the, uh, you know, on the Ohio River, and I could go as long as I was with my friends, my older friends. We catfish all night. We go fishing for carp. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. We didn't have to worry about things that, that that people worry about today. Then when I moved to Florida, I got to see a little bit of what urban life was about. So I think it was good in my overall development. Oh, it's totally cool. It's a good. You know, because I wish my kids could have some of that small town life feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, I would actually enjoy it personally. Yeah, nothing like it growing up. I mean, we used to swim in the Ohio River. We jump off bridges, train trestles. You know, we built forts. It just—it was fun. Yeah. Uh, I have no regrets about my childhood and growing up in West Virginia. It was a blessing. So you got—you went to Orlando. You. Finished high school there. What did you go to college? What how, what did you go do? I went to the University of Central Florida for my first two and a half years of college. So I stayed in Orlando and went to UCF. And then um, I met a lady, and she 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 graduated before I did. She got offered a job in Buffalo, New York, her hometown. And I ended up going, finishing college at uh, SUNY Fredonia, which is outside of Buffalo, New York. Oh, that's cool. So you, yeah, it was cold. It was yeah, very, very cold, very cold right? <laughs> very cold. <laughs> so you go from Orlando, Florida, which is probably hot and humid, up to yeah. frigid climate. Yeah, and it got really cold. It and got really cold. You're seeing all sorts of parts of the country. That's kind of cool. Yeah, it's different. And, and every part of the country has something unique and great about it. I mean, I love Florida. Um, I, I, 
look, I've been to New York City a few times. I like New York City. Don't want to live there, but I enjoy going there. But, you know, Buffalo, New York wasn't a bad place to spend a couple of years. That's cool. So, she, um, you finished school up there. The, you, I, I'm assuming you married this young lady? Yeah, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that happened. Um, I, ended up, I ended up graduating college, and I went to work for Merrill Lynch in Ooh. West Virginia. I decided it was time to go back home. So, I went to work for Merrill Lynch out of college in West Virginia. Okay, and so you got a... You went and took your, what are they, Series 7 test, is that right? That is correct. And you're, you, you're definitely in a different field now than what you started out, so I'm curious how that went about. You know, I, in college, I definitely wanted to go into stocks and bonds, had dreams of going to Wall Street, all that. And I was an economics major, so I just, I was fascinated by, international currencies and commodities and the trading of stocks. And, and, and you kind of, you leave college and you got these rosy colored glasses on that your job is to really help people. And it is to a certain extent, but it's also, you're working for a business. So part of working for a business is you've got to generate revenue for them. Mm-hmm. So I right out of college for a little while. It was all right. It wasn't my cup of tea, though. I decided after a couple of years, and I went back to Florida to work in political consulting for a couple of years. Oh, man, you are switching Jeez. gears up. Yeah, I had some really good friends in college that I was in. We were involved in some political organizations. They went to work for uh, a gentleman named Doug Getzlow, who's passed away now, that had a big political consulting firm in Orlando. Uh, and he and I... Uh, became friends while I was in college. So he had offered me a position to come down and help run some political campaigns in the early nineties. I guess that's kind of important to have a good economic degree in that, you know, and um, putting a good campaign together, probably somebody that can manage their money pretty well. Yeah, it was, it was different. I mean, it was fun. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I had to get an assessment of one eighty two, Okay. And from Orlando to Tampa. So you flew, you're a pilot. No, I, 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 did, I did get my student pilot's license when I was 17, but I never finished it. Yeah. But no, so I would get in, we'd charter a plane, I'd have to go to Tampa, I would have to be there in the morning, and then by the afternoon, I'd have to be in Miami, and it was, I mean, you're just flying all over the state when you're doing things like that, when you're running statewide campaigns. So, you know, as someone in their mid-20s, I think it's 23, 20, or 24, 25 at the time, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. But a couple of years of that, and I'm like, yep, I'm ready to go back to West Virginia. So seems like this is this is kind of your M.O. here. You uh, you have a little bit of fun. You're like, time to go back. You go down to Florida. You're like, you know, that was a cool life experience. I like flying this plane around. I like doing this. Time to go back to West Virginia. Man, it, it, it'll always be home to me. It will always be number one in my heart, no, no matter where I live. That's pretty cool that you have those roots. And I have a place, me and Cody, I bet both have the same place where even though we don't live there, I didn't grow up there, but I feel like that's where our family's from, where our roots are from, and that's uh, the White Mountains. So, Yeah, I get it. I get it 100%. So, you know, I went back there, and then I got into banking. So, Okay. So you get back <laughs> into what you originally kind of – you go back yeah. somewhat into well, your original plan. 
yeah, I got into banking and, and worked for a few different banks. I worked in commercial lending. I was commercial loan officer, commercial underwriter, did mortgages, did just about everything in banking. And then in 1999, I had left Wells Fargo and gone to another bank. And one of my former bosses got transferred to California. And he called me on the phone. And uh, he said, hey, uh, I'd, like to, I'd like for you to come back to Wells Fargo. I'm running uh, for Southern California. What does it take for me to get you to come to California? Well, I'm 29 at the time, single. I thought, yeah, I've never been to California. Uh, so well, first marriage didn't work up. out. I'm, well, that's where uh, we led into it. This Now you're single. You went from... Not single to now you're single. We don't even have to get into that. Back to yeah. single life, and you're on to California. Yeah, they they said, "What does it take to get you to come to California? How long is it? How long is it going to take for you to make a decision if you come back to Wells Fargo and come to California?" I said, "I'm ready." Yeah, I just made the decision right there on the phone. I thought, you know what? I've never been out west. Um, I'd like to try it out. So moved to California in '99 and. Um, Started started doing the banking gig out in California for a while. So Wells Fargo, California. What part of California? Um, they told me they were going to send me to Orange County, and I ended up in San Bernardino. Okay, San Bernardino. Yep. You know they Home have of the quakes. The quake. Yep. I they have a cool. So the San Bernardino Airport. I flew yep. in there several times. Yep. Um, it's cool. Yeah. The, the runway is like so long. You can take off land, take off land, take off. It's like, it's because they, it's a, this is getting in the weeds, but they service a lot of giant jets there across from the whole world. So you'll see like Kazakhstan or whatever, Pakistan, planes there getting serviced with the oh, yeah. flags. What on was them. the first one you said? Kazakhstan. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not right. Uh, I think he's just making stuff up now. It's one of those, you know. It's one of those sand countries. Yeah. So, San Bernardino, how do you like it there? You know, San Bernardino gets a bad rap, and there's some really bad areas. I mean, you can Google it and see where it, where it falls in the crime ratings. Where I was at was pretty good. I mean, it was in a decent part of town. Now, it's, it's, it was better back then than it is now. But, yeah. um, you know, I met a really a lot of really great people. I made some really good friends. Got into motocross a little bit. Yeah, ended it's up, pretty big you know, over there. You got those mountains real close. Oh, yeah. We used to run Glen Helen on the weekend. Yeah. So we'd run Glen Helen. We'd go down to Paris Raceway. We would go run Elsinore. Then um, did a lot of that on the weekend. So that was kind of fun, and and I had a really good time doing that. But I got tired of getting hurt. I would uh, go to – I don't yes. – have you ever been to Dumont Dunes? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we used to run a Dumont Dunes. We'd run, we'd leave uh, Friday after work, load our bikes up, head to Dumont Dunes, especially when it cooled down. You don't want to go there in the summer. But around September, October, we'd run up to Dumont Dunes on the weekend and go uh, ride the dunes pretty hard. Yeah. But, you know, you start having some pretty bad wrecks and cracking my sternum and. Yeah, it was it was time to get rid of the dirt bike and get into Harley. You can only be a human <laughs> dart for so long before. Oh, it's awful. human lawn dart. It's fun. It just 
it's a young man's game, Brock. You know, when you get hurt that bad, and, and I was, you know, getting closer to 32, 33 at the time, I just didn't heal as quickly as I did when I was 16. Yeah, I have a um, really good friend. They just finished the uh, San Felipe 250. It's down in Mexico. And the next race is the Baja 500, and they're trying to do the Baja 500, the Baja 1000, doing all three. And It's in May? Next yeah, one? Yeah, next one's in May, 1st of June. And so my really close buddy, Clay, they had really giant whoops, and they're yeah. deep and long, and he tore his rotator cuff just riding through the whoops. Did he really? It's torn. Like, he can't lift his arm past his so I can, And they're, like, all 40-plus, so they're, like, nothing's healing, not for a long time. You know, so I get that, what you're saying. Every time you crash, hurts a little bit more. It takes a little bit longer to recover. And, you know, those guys scare me, man, because they go fast and hard. And it's like they start telling you stories about, man, like how they almost got thrown off the bike going 80 miles an hour. And if one thing didn't go right, who knows, you know? But Yeah. And the problem is when you have the bikes that will do it, even if you're trying to be careful – you get that whiskey throttle, and you just get too excited. And, yeah, I mean, I tried not to wreck, but, yeah, I had a tendency to have some pretty good ones back in the day. Well, there's, o- there's always opportunity to have some good wrecks. Always. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, You're having fun. Oh, yeah, man. But then but then to get the PSE. So, you know, I was still going back east and bow hunting. I started bow hunting so out west. So you were a bow hunter the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I, I had some periods for six or eight months where I wouldn't touch a bow, but I would always go back to it. So, yeah, probably around 2005, 2006, I started getting into it a lot heavier again yeah. because I met enough people out west that, that, that bow hunted out west, and I still have property in West Virginia to this day. Now, I haven't hunted back there in like eight or nine years, but I would go back east to go bow hunting every year. So, you know, I kept hunting, I kept shooting the bow, but around 05, I really got back into it really heavy and got into the tuning of bows and, um, I don't know, just kind of an awakening, I guess. Yeah. Uh, in my soul that I'm like, man, I love this. And, and I liked it. I, I enjoyed it more than I did riding motocross and fishing in Mexico and all the other stuff I, that I like to do sometimes. Yeah. So I got back into it heavy, and in 08, like January of 08, I was looking on the PSC website, and, and I was working in banking at the time, and I'd been through 9-11, which changed banking a lot. I mean, banking changed a lot with the Patriot Act and everything. Mm-hmm. And then we started having the issues with real estate. And I'm like, you know, I'm not enjoying the banking like I used to. It was more heavily regulated. I didn't like the fact that it was all service. Hey, we want to charge for services. We got to get service income. It just, it just changed. Yeah. I saw the PSC had the West Coast sales rep position available. So I'm like, you know, I've never worked at the bow shop. I don't have any experience in the outdoor industry. But I've got experience with the outdoors. I'm going to send him a resume and see what happens. And at this point, you're married. How many kids do you have? You know, I've got one at the time. One child. You know, 
uh, he would have been about eight years old in L.A. Okay, so, I mean, this is a pretty significant career change, really. Yeah, yeah, it was it was big, and I talked to the wife about it. And you know, her brother works um, in the fishing industry, and her dad was big in the fishing industry for a while. And I said, look, it's probably going to be a pay cut, but I'm going to send him a resume. I probably won't get a call anyway, but, you know, it's probably time to look at getting out of banking. So I sent the resume, and John Shepley called me. I sent it on Thursday. John Shepley called me on Friday and said, how quick can you get to Tucson for an interview? Man, you always get these guys that are like, hey. Come now. Um, we needed you yesterday, so I, but today will be fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was it was the perfect scenario. Or I'd have probably never gotten into the industry. They hadn't had a rep for about four or five months. Hmm. They had a huge stack. They didn't of have a West Coast rep. No, the West Coast rep had had resigned, and they were taking their time to fill the position because they wanted someone that had some business acumen and a little understanding of a business, a little bit of a business background. So. I interviewed with John Shepley and got to meet Pete that day. And then uh, um, took him about six weeks or so, and they called me and said, we'd like to offer you the position. Well, it took him long enough. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Well, they wanted to vet through the process and interview other people. And, and, you know, they did keep in touch with me, and they said, look, you're in the running. We've got to do some more interviews. And, hey, I was coming from outside the industry. Nobody knew me in this industry at the time. That's, so I like it. The, I, I like the hire. Um, I was actually talking to another friend last podcast, Phil Back. Mm-hmm. They don't like hiring people from within the industry. We personally, on our RV side, we don't like doing that either because we want fresh blood. We want them to kind of learn it from us. And it sounds like they kind of went the same route. They wanted fresh blood in the industry, someone that could think outside yeah. the box no more than just selling they could get the whole picture but he kind of had to be uh willing to kind of up and leave what he was doing too and and jump into a new career and a different place and all that stuff too. oh man so. yeah like you you like an adventure it sounds like lonnie yeah i mean i'm not afraid to take a chance like that so yeah you know they told me it was a commission-based job and told me what the responsibilities were, and I'm like, well, if it's a commission-based job, the harder I work, the more I make. You know, and for the listeners out there, like, there's nothing better for me than saying, here's the commission, and as long as it it is very clear-cut commission, I'm all in on it because you're betting on yourself. Very clear-cut. Yeah. I don't want any gray area on the commission. No gray area. It's got to be, you know, this is what it is, and the only way – it gets better as if I sell more, I get more. As long as it's yep. that way, then we're good. You know, because really the sky's the limit, right? Brock, it goes back to childhood sports. Do you want Do you want to win, or do you just want to participate? You know, and so many people, they get so scared off by commission. Well, I remember during the interview process, John Shepley asked me what I made at the bank, and I actually lowballed a little bit. You told um, lower. You didn't want to scare him, or what? Yeah, I, I did pretty well. The company I was with, and yeah. I didn't want to scare him off to think, oh, well, he'll never accept the offer. Yeah. I just offer, and I asked him. I said, I said, look, this is what I need to make. 
And I remember he said, well, my best reps make that. I said, good. So there's not a ceiling, and I'll make sure that I get above that. Yeah, that's that's all you want to know. What's your best guy making? Well, just that's what you should expect out of me. If I'm doing yeah, my job right, that's what's going to happen. It didn't happen overnight. I mean, it was a steep learning curve. So I I knew I, I know business. I know how to sell. But I needed to know more about the product itself. I knew how to use the product. And, but, and I started to learn to tune bows and things like that. But there was a gentleman named George Chapman. Um, George Chapman used to do the PSC school back in the day. As a matter of fact, he was one of the two or three original employees of PSC and actually came from Muhammad, Illinois, up to Tucson with Pete when he brought the company out here. Yeah. So he's doing a school up in Northern California, and George said, hey, if you can make it, you're welcome to show up, and I will teach you everything you need to know about bows in about 60 hours. So I went to the George Chapman School of Archery, and I'd only been on the job a couple weeks. And without him, I never would have understood Bose the way I do today. He was an unbelievable teacher of archery. He was like Yoda. That's it's a, unbelievable what that man could teach. That is a really good example of like, hey, you sold yourself into this industry. You wanted to embrace it fully. And so you went to the best of the best to get your training. Yeah, he was the best. I mean, he was unbelievable. A great person, a great teacher. You felt comfortable in the class when he was teaching it. There was no such thing as a dumb question with him. Um, and, and in that week, I learned, I'm still using today what George Chapman taught me back in 2008 when I started with this company. The fundamentals were unbelievable that I gained during that, that week with him. That's so, cool. That's really cool. So, well, but a lot of people will tell you that. If you ask around, especially the old guard, George passed away, I don't know, eight or nine years ago. Yeah. If you ask a lot of people that have been in this game a long time, George Chapman, you bring his name up, he taught them at one time or another. So you've, uh, you started in what? Oh, eight. You said with PSC. Oh, eight. Yeah. So has this been your longest job career wise? Yeah, pretty much the longest time with one company for sure. Yeah. And, um, I did, I, I remember listening to a bunch of different business podcasts, but one thing that really stuck out to me, was like, it takes really 10 years to build your career. Do you yeah, I would, I would agree with that? You would agree with that? Because you've been there 10 years now. Yeah, I mean, I was a rep for almost 12 years. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had California, Arizona, Nevada, and Hawaii. And um, I, I wouldn't be where I am today without the dealers that I worked with over the years. They sure. got me this position. They supported me. They rewarded me for always answering the phone, always. You know, being a rep in this industry, or most industries, I don't care what industry you're in, yep. your phone, you need to be available 24-7 if you're going to be in sales. I agree. And you're going to be in service, because a rep does service as well. you got to answer questions about warranty. You know, you get a call on Sunday evening from a guy that's a friend of yours trying to tune a bow. Yeah. 
if you'll just be accessible to them, you don't always have to be there face to face, but if you're always accessible, you'll answer their questions, take care of their issues. I got rewarded for doing that for the dealers, and I can't thank all of them enough. I wouldn't be in my seat today if it wasn't for the dealers in California, Arizona, Nevada, and Hawaii. You just said the secret sauce to success right there, which is, to me, this is the secret sauce is um, you're integrable, right? You got integrity. You answer your phone, and then you do what you promise you're going to do. And you do those three things to be successful. And it's crazy to me how many reps or whatever, because we deal with reps also on our side, and that they don't think service is part of it. That's not their job. I'm like, no, that is your job. And when I have a problem with something, I need you to handle it. I, de- I don't need you to give me the number to your uh, warranty department. I got that. That's why I'm not calling. If I get that really easy. <laughs> I, need, I got that. I need you to fix this because you're my rep. And um, some people get it. Some don't. Yeah, and the reps that help you, you reward them. Absolutely. And, and, and another thing is a wrap. If I got a warranty call, if a guy called me with a warranty issue, I did not hesitate at the end of that call to ask the dealer, uh, how, do, how does your wall look? Is there some empty pegs I can get some PSEs on? I would try to steal peg space. You know, I looked yeah. at any action with a dealer as an opportunity to get some, get some more product on a shelf. Yeah. I, that's a great point. You know, like you just got done helping them, right? Servicing yeah. them. And you know how grateful those people are when you're doing that. So it's a great opportunity to say, hey, man, can we put some more product on yourself? And they're going to push it. And this is why they're going to push your product because they know if they have a question, you're going to answer the phone. And I, for- try, I tried to do the best job I could for them. And, and I legitimately care about the dealers. I yeah. did. I- these guys were friends of mine, these guys and gals, because they're women that own archery shops. And they became my friends over time. Well, I still get, I probably still get 20 to 30 calls a week from dealers that I've dealt with for 12 years. Oh, yeah. Because their success is your always, success. It's, it's not combined. always business like they, yeah. They'll call to the fact for a little while, or they'll call to tell me, you know, their daughter's getting married, or. Or whatever it may be, and, and I like having interaction with the dealer base. Oh, yeah, because you're not just a salesman to them. You're a friend. Some probably yeah. people probably think of you as family. Like, there's some reps that we think of as family. You know, you, you become really close because if they're a good dealer, you're a good sales rep, you've probably been through some thick and thin together, you know, good times and bad times. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and I, I, I miss being a rep. Uh, it, Look, I liked getting on the road. It was a challenge. You yeah. know, when we were new product and it was time to pound the four states, and I knew I had five weeks to get it done because I had an elk hunt, you know, late season archery elk hunt coming up. We, we definitely got those challenge. going on. That, that was my World Series, man. That was time to turn the competitive juices up a little bit, get on the road, see the dealers, break some bread with them, bring in some pizzas, have a good time, take some orders. Yeah. So I miss being on the road. I don't think people really understand, like, for me too, like, I miss selling, being the salesman, being the face of the company. Because when you're selling, you're the face of that company. Like, Lonnie's, when he's out there hustling, you're the face of that company. And, you know, 
there is a thrill to it. There is that, you know, if it's the uh, accomplishment factor of serving your customer base the correct way because you get to see them grow, everyone's growing. And, you know, I miss that also, personally. Tired of going different places to get all you want? Looking for a program that offers everything? Are you interested in training, nutrition, baseball, softball, after-school youth programs, hunting, or charity work? One Performance is an all-inclusive program that offers training, advising, instruction, and opportunity for everyone, from the beginner to the professional. With a staff compiled of some of the best in their fields, impressive backgrounds, and an unmatched passion for teaching and giving back, One Performance is the first of its kind in Arizona. With the connections and background we have in the baseball community on a local and national level, from t-ball to the major leagues, One Performance offers teams known as Arizona National BPA, opportunity for instruction, gameplay, and development in every aspect of the game, both physically and mentally. The staff at One Performance Training are some of the finest in their respective fields. They strive to educate, motivate, and assist every athlete in maximizing their abilities. Whether you're looking for an opportunity for a young athlete or a seasoned professional to surround themselves with like-minded coaches, mentors, and athletes, One Performance is the family you're looking for. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Ready for an escape? Ready for an adventure? Do you want to camp, hunt, hit the dunes, or just relax on the beach? Ruly White RV is the number one toy hauler dealer in Arizona for the past five years running. With a no-pressure culture and no dealer fees, they guarantee you a great price and a great experience as you purchase your very own toy hauler or travel trailer. Ruly White is family-owned and operated and is now expanded to five locations, including Mesa, West Phoenix, North Phoenix, Flagstaff, and Idaho Falls, Idaho. Whether you're looking for a toy hauler or travel trailer, fifth wheel or bumper pole, Rolly White can get you what you're looking for. They carry all the big names, including Genesis Supreme, Vortex, Attitude, Wolfpack, Raptor, Forest River, and the newly released Wanderer by Genesis. We all want to beat the heat or just escape the craziness and get outdoors. Let Rolly White help you get there by visiting any of our locations or checking us out on Facebook, Instagram, and online at RollyWhite.com. Yeah, it, it was fun. I mean, it was good times. Good times. There was a lot. It was a lot of nights in hotels. You get tired. You know, you, you get the hotel at 2. You're up at 6 a.m. the next morning. You've got three dealers to see. Yeah. It's not it's not the glamour life everybody thinks it is. It's not like, oh, I'm going to get to go on all these sponsored hunts, and I'm going to do this and that. Don't get me wrong. Some of that will come around. Yeah. But it's not a glamour job. It's, you got to put your nose get it done. Anyone that's done shows and hustled like that, like, to be honest, like, when I think of an RV show, I, like, I know – they're needed you gotta do it but i think of just being miserable for the weekend <laughs> it's like oh, yeah. we're gonna get through this boys. predetermined miserable yeah you're gonna do really good during and then towards the end of the days your feet are just gonna feel like you want to chop them off oh your feet barking by the end of the day it's awful yeah i just think about uh, the amount of pain my feet are gonna go through by the end of the day but you like you 
you have a lot of fun interacting with everybody, if it's dealers, other manufacturers, or whatever, you know, but it is a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and I need to, to do more of that again. I'm glad that the COVID restrictions have eased up quite a bit. It was nice. You know, PSC was the only – we went to the ATA this year. Oh. And our major competitors did not go. So we made the decision with a smaller footprint to go to the ATA. Part of that was, you know, I missed the interaction with dealers and distributors and, you know, other manufacturers. So I was glad that we went to the ATA this year. Had you guys not been in a while? Well, they didn't have the ATA in 2021. Right. So the last ATA they had before this one was the one that uh, I hung out with you, Brock. That was the one in Indianapolis in 2020, I believe, correct? Uh, he just he had to go take a call real quick, but yeah, he'll be right back. Okay. But I, I believe I, I do remember him saying he went out to that one. Yeah, um, Brock was there at that, and that's when we introduced John Dudley that he was coming over to PSE. Right. So yeah, that was a pretty good ATA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding. That seems to work I, out pretty well for you guys so far, huh? It's it's working extremely well. He <laughs> he does a great job of of. He is a great influencer. Right. He. He's got credibility. He was a shooter. He's a great hunter, and he's a great teacher. He's a good boat, a great boat technician, and he gives people that information that they need to be able to work on boats. Yeah, and it's all free. Like the content he puts out is is. Uh, I mean, I I actually learned how to set my bow up watching his stuff. Um, yeah, uh, you, you know, watch so. his videos and tune about right. And I, I did. I mean, yeah. I, that's how I set mine up. From I mean, it was during COVID. I got a new one, and um, appreciate you guys. <laughs> yeah, we, I, one of the ones I got, I gave to Cody. Yeah, but it was, um, you know, uh, the stuff that he's doing. I think has really opened up the, the door for um, a lot of new uh, I guess, uh, a whole new generation, but uh, new like market. new new people, you know, um, that may not have been. Um, you know, uh, bow hunters at any time just shooting now, <clears throat> and we've yeah. seen that a lot at the at the tack events over the last yeah. couple of years. And um, you know, just even people you see we've women, out. you know, women and people we've brought out that yeah. that weren't into it. That you know, they're there with their husband or they're shooting on their own or whatever. And it's 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 cool to kids. And you know, I think there's a whole new um, whole new just, demographic. Yeah, just I mean. It's it's so widespread now, it's kind of cool. Yeah, you know, I think when I hear in the archery world, it's always like, what guy's going to bring us that magical group that's not in the group right now? Because that's what you want is, like, new blood, right? New blood, yeah. And, um, like, how how did you get – to me, when I look at John Dudley, I look at him as, like, what you want – in an ambassador for your brand. He's got it all. He's got the social media down. He pushes the product hard. He's innovative where he's always trying to come out with new stuff. And he's very loyal. Like, so when you guys were looking around, like what drew you guys to him? Uh, I'll make it simple, Brock. When I was a rep, I saw the type of impact he was having on the industry itself. I saw the non-endemics he was bringing into the sport. The sport. I would see him with the Joe Rogans. Yeah. When I was a rep, I said that if I ever had 
if I ever had the chair of PSE, if I was the one making the decisions or, or, or having a say in the decision, I wanted John Dudley shooting a PSE. Yeah. So when I got promoted in April of 2019 as a VP of sales, I got started on it immediately. That was goal number one. First, I mean, I see a lot of people in the bow industry, and I don't see anyone pushing the product as hard as he does. No, and he pushes the sport very hard. He is a great ambassador. Yes. I talk to a lot of consumers. I talk to tons of consumers. I get a lot of phone calls. I reach out to people. I still know a lot of people that are shooters, regional, whatever. Everyone that I talk to that gets to meet John at a pack event or a seminar or whatever says nothing but good things about him. Yes. That's important to me. I he has he does a great job with the public. Yeah. And he takes the time to talk to people and he does his his educational stuff, he doesn't charge for it. And I think that's important. Yeah. And he teaches that non-endemic that we need. Look, the, 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 the bow manufacturers have fought for the same small pie for years. Yes. Now, you get a bigger pie, everybody can get a bigger piece. Yep. So I don't just want us all fighting for the same customers all the time. It's hard to grow the sport. I love the sport. I love when I get someone that's never shot a bow before and I can take into a range. They get the full draw. They let an arrow go, and it's the same reaction every time. They get this Cheshire cat smile on their face. They turn, and they're like, man, it's awesome. Yeah. And then if I can get them to have some instant gratification, I can get them shooting a pipe plate at 20 yards within 10 to 15 minutes and hitting it 9 out of 10 times, they're hooked. Yes. Quickly. Yes. And then, if, <laughs> and then if they want to be a hunter and you take them out and they have success, you've got, you, you got an archer for life. Oh, man. There's a feeling you can't really – um, describe to anybody, it's like this, you know, you could be more bored than you've ever been in your life, <laughs> have more excitement than you've ever had in your life, and then at the same time, you could have the ultimate letdown, of, like, and then all of a sudden, the tides can turn, and now you're back to the ultimate excitement, because you found the animal, you thought you put a bad shot on it, oh my gosh, the world <laughs> is ruined. Double ricochet. And then you're like, no, he's dead. I hit him perfect. <laughs> well, there, there's no worse feeling in the world than when you hit a, you hit a critter and, and you think you've hit him pretty good, okay? Yeah, yeah. And you sit and you wait an hour, two hours, or three hours, or overnight, whatever it may be. And you start looking and you don't find him in the first three to four minutes. Because you're questioning everything about life at that moment. Why am I doing this? I can't believe I made such a bad shot. (laughs) And then 10 minutes later, you start looking and you see an elk down and you're like, you want to cry. You you really want to cry. People do cry all the time. I've had some crying experiences while hunting for sure. Oh, I mean, I've almost thrown my bow. It was my fault, but I've almost thrown my bow, and then all of a sudden another buck walks out from behind him. It was a better buck. Yeah. And you're like, oh, man. Well, good so thing I airballed that one. 
This oh, is- I got that one. But it was, you know, it was from the lowest low to the highest high within 15 seconds. Yeah. And and I've sat water. I like to I like to do late season elk hunts. Yeah. Um, and it's a religious experience. You're going to set water, you know, a, a lot of these hunts if you're in an area where they need, you know, where so there's you not like, a lot. you like personally the late Arizona bull elk hunt? Um, I like it because I can draw the tag. Yes. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, I'd love to be out there where they're screaming. But, man, I'm, you see how I like that. You, love, Boy, you want to hunt almost wait, every I'm year? I'm not going to wait 10 years, man. It's two to three. I want to tag. So oh, I'm 14 years in, 15 years in. So I got Yeah, well, I didn't call this year. So it's the first time in a couple of years. But two years ago, I was elk hunting in Arizona. I had sat for 13 days. Ooh, you're almost on your last day. Well, I missed an elk on day on day eleven, and and I just thought that was the end of the world. I thought I'm not going to have a chance. You know, I was seeing plenty of plenty of deer, turkeys, cows were coming in, and on the thirteenth day, the next to last day of the hunt, I had a bull come to water, and you know, I aired the bull. And we found him. He went about a hundred yards, but. I ended up giving my, well, I got pneumonia on that hunt on, on like day eight or nine, and I still kept hunting. I just, I love doing it that much. And people are like, well, how are you so patient? I'm like, you're approaching it incorrectly. What you do is you wake up in the morning, you say, I'm going to be lazy for 12 hours. I'm going to sit in that ground blind or tree stand. I'm not going to move. I'm just going to breathe maybe play some games on my phone, read a book or whatever, and just say, I'm going to be lazy today instead of I've got to be patient. Yeah. So it's not easy to do. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. I love spotting and stalking, but growing up back east, I had a tree stand. So you're used to that style of hunting. I'm used to it, and the reason I can still do it even out west, because I do like spot and stalk for deer, and I would for elk under the right scenario. Yeah. And that too. But I can sit because I've had success doing it back east. I've hunted 10 to 12 days in a row, sitting in a tree stand all day, waiting for that one buck to come out. So when you've had success doing it, you know it pays off. And I believe in the law of averages. The longer I'm out there, the better the chance is when I'm sitting water. You can't argue with me about it. You're not going to kill him from camp. You're not going to kill him from a hotel room. So if I'm going to be there, I might as well be out in the field. It's true. Might as well. I mean, it would be nice to kill one from the hotel room sometimes. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not against that if that, if that would work. But no, we walk out. out parking yeah, lot. Yeah, you don't find a lot of bulls in the parking lot. No. So it's it, it, when you're when you're sitting like that and and you're and you're like I'm going to sit for as long as it takes. It does become. It's maddening at times. It's a law of averages because the moment you don't sit there, that's when the bulls finally come in. So you have to sit there. Yes, see it you do. all the way through. And here's the thing. I never see bulls between, say, 10 and 2 sitting water late season. Never. Yeah. But do it anyway because the one day I don't, they're going to show up. Well, the one thing, too, is like you don't want to track your scent in and out and just bring the averages down. Yeah, well, I mean, I've killed a lot of bucks back in West Virginia because I would sit in a tree stand all day. Yeah. So a lot of my buddies, you know, we'd have big pieces of private property that my friends would own. They would go out, they'd hunt 
until nine o'clock and then they would go to their truck, get lunch, take a nap. But I would stay in the stands multiple times, guys getting out of the tree stands and walking back to their trucks. They bumped bucks off their beds right to me. Oh, nice. So, you know, and my dad, my dad was the one that preached that to me when I was a kid. He would be like, I mean, I would remember him waking me up in the morning, tired. I didn't want to go cold or whatever. That's like, you're not going to kill that big buck laying in that bed, boy. Mm-hmm. So get up. We're headed out to the, we're headed out to the stand. Yeah. And then when I'd be like, I would tell him on the way out there, we're going to go get lunch. It's like Danny said, nope, I hope you brought it with you because we're not leaving till dark. <laughs> That's cool. So, That's cool. So my dad's pretty hardcore about that. Well, you know, that's a good thing, man. So back to the ambassador, John Dudley, and, you know, what he did for you guys. What? How hard was it to get him? I mean, you guys probably had some competition. Snagging. Yeah, I mean, obviously there were other boat companies that were extremely interested in him. Yeah. The one thing that I, that I, want, that, that, that I tried to, to explain was you're going to have some input on some products. Yeah, you said yeah, the right words not, there, I think. Yeah, we're not going to just throw knock on on a bow and just put it out there with different colored strings. Yeah. We're we're going to let you have some input on what we bring to market because it's going to have your name on it. It's your bow. Yeah. You're going to market it. It's, you know, this is your baby. So I think he really wanted to be able to do that. And I think that was probably the deciding factor for him to come to PSE is, Look, I'm not so arrogant to think that we at PSE always know the right product to come out with or the right features on the product. Yeah. Even with our even with our target archers, we send them prototypes before we bring them to market and we ask them, what did we do right? What did we do wrong? Can we make it better? Yes. So we've always been open to input from our shooting staff and with john we just took to a new level did um now he came on with you guys i remember him telling me one of the biggest reasons was he's always wanted to have his own bow he's always dreamt about always wanted it and you guys really facilitated that and also you let him be john you know i think that's a big part yes he was able to put his flair on it and he has a lot of flair yeah. Yes, the end was very, I mean, with the, the bright green strings and the green graphics and everything. And they had to be the right green. Can't mess that up, buddy. <laughs> it had to be the exact Pantone. I know, we had that discussion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what kind of in- impact did he have? Huge. Like, I mean, it's game changer? We- <laughs> yes, because at the time we needed, we needed an ambassador you help bring credibility to the brand. Yeah. You Which know, it's unfortunate because you guys did have some of the best products out there. It just had lost its steam. Yes. We, we look when, when I took over in April, 2019 and I didn't take over, it was a team effort. Okay. I've yeah. got a other team around me. They, they helped me make all my decisions. I mean, I can't brag on them enough. My, my, the guy that runs manufacturing, the lady that runs customer service, the people in my planning department, everything, they make this machine work and they're unbelievable and they're very dedicated to the brand and to their job. 
but um, but we didn't. We needed somebody to be the mouthpiece, to be essentially to preach the gospel that PSE is a credible brand. We're not just a price point bow. We make the best price point bows, yeah. singers, things like that. And I got tired as a rep. I'd heard it a lot. Hey, my first bow was a PSD. Now I've upgraded to brand X. I agree. That made that made me want to puke yeah. because bow, bow performance. We're always top of the top of the chain when it comes to performance reliability. We make top shelf product. Yeah, but we didn't have the right people out there voicing that to the general public that had an audience big enough where they could say, "You need to get PSD a chance." Because that's all I ask. Give us a chance. When you go to buy a bow, shoot all the bows you want. But be open-minded about it. And John did that for us overnight. Hey, it's good enough for me. You need to at least give it a chance. Yeah, I agree with that. And then, you know, he had this huge following. I remember the lead-up to it. You know, that's the year I met John's in 2019 when we became buddies. And I kept. One, I'm like, hey, dude, what bow should I get? And he's like, hey, just can you just chill out for a little bit? That's what he kept telling me. Can you just chill out? Just chill. And he used those exact words, too. I guarantee you. Yeah, he's like, just hang on. Because every time I'd go hunting with him, I'm like, dude, seriously. He's like, dude, seriously, chill. <laughs> yeah. Be it just fine. Yeah, it'll be all right. There'll be, trust me, you're shooting a bow. It's working for you, so just stop asking. Yeah, so and the thing, I get to interact with John a lot, and I consider him a friend now, not just somebody that's part of the team or Team PSC. Yeah, but I I enjoy talking to John. John's he has some fun. pretty good conversations about hunting and other things. So he's a real person. No, for real, and his wife, and that's what completes him. Is oh, Sharon's great. Sharon's great. She uh, keeps him grounded. If it wasn't for her, who knows? Where he'd be at, you know, the why they always say behind a great man, there's an even better wife, and I believe that 100. percent Yes, um, yes, I because like he's been great every time I've dealt with it. So I feel like the success I've had in my life, I would say 50, at least 50 plus percent of that goes to my wife that supported me behind, that gave me, you know, I've seen guys that were like, like my my wife gave me the tools to like say go do your dreams but i know plenty of guys that like your wife letting you take that job psc like there's so many girls that would be like nope we got a pretty good gig here you're not gonna screw it up yeah that was a turning point or i wouldn't be here and she said no i'd rather you stay in banking you know what you make you know i took a bit i took a little bit of a risk when I did it. Now I had confidence in myself that I could make it work, but without her support, I'd have never done it. Yeah. No, that's awesome. And really coming here to Tucson was a decision I ran by her because when they asked me to come over here and be VP of sales, I talked to, I talked to my wife about it first and I said, look, we're going to have to relocate to Tucson. Yeah. And she, her father's still in, in California. Our son's still there. Her family's there. She's an LA girl. And, um, and we talked about it. And she said, I will go wherever you need to go. And now that she's been out here in Tucson, she loves it. 
But, you know, Tucson is a kind of a cool place. I, See, um, it's different. It's really different. It's like, what's it, 1,000 feet above where Phoenix is, so it's about 2,500 feet. Right. And so you get a little bit cooler down there, about 10 degrees, it seems like. Five it's to still ten. Hot, hot. Don't kid yourself. I mean, it's, it's still, still it's like just, it's nice when it, in the evenings it cools down a little bit better than out here. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And where where I live at, we get snow once in a while in the winter. You see, when's the last time it snowed out here? Then remember the last. It's been a minute since it snowed here. Yeah, I, I remember back in Cave like Creek and Carefree will get it, but yeah, down here, probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years down yeah. here. Christmas, I think, a while you know, back. Global warming and all. <laughs> it's definitely warmer here. But yeah, Phoenix hot. We were only 97 a day, so. Hey, yeah, but it's it a dry. Yeah, even if it's 115, it's a dry heat. Yeah, uh, don't let people kid so, you, man. So is like, the oven. The oven's 115, <laughs> you know. I, get, I hear that all the time. Like, can we, you guys don't have humidity. And I was like, well, actually, we did last year. And I remember looking at the heat index with the humidity. We're at 145 degrees for a full straight week. So I'm like, I don't want to hear your crap about no humidity, nothing. Like, it's 145 here for a week. And we didn't well, close any schools down or nothing. Like, we yeah, should shut the whole state down at that point. Things are melting. Well, <laughs> people are on the road. How hot it is out here. My friends from back east. And I'm like, it's so hot months of the year that you don't go in your pool until it gets dark. That's yeah. how hot it is. <laughs> that's a true story. They make a pool cooler that yeah. we almost bought <laughs> to cool the pool down. And you always think you want the opposite, like the heater, the pool heater, right? No, right. actually here you want the cooler. Yeah. When you jump in the pool and it's as hot as the outside, it's not that great. It's no, it's not great. It's not great. And, and, you know, it gets so hot, you feel like a rotisserie chicken when you step out. I mean, I don't care if it's dry heat or not. When it's 110, it's hot. I, I, I can, honestly, it's like I can tell when it's above 100 and when it's above 110. There's just a yeah. certain feeling you get when you walk out to 110 plus. From 110 to 122 or whatever, it's all the same. It's just really, really hot. Yes, it does yeah. get hot. It's like over one ten doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, over one ten, you just come out in your face like you feel it cooking the moment you walk out. You're like, it's I'm baking. If I stay out here too long, and then you're like, oh, we got a baseball game. <laughs> Can't Cody, wait. Cody's playing a baseball game. Yeah, good times. So yeah, you, yeah, sounds you, fun, guy. Lonnie, you literally got yeah. to see a company turn from like the Walmart brand to like the premier brand in archery, really. Uh, I think I think we're getting back to where we were the Kubo, yeah. you know, where we're the Kubo again. I remember back in the, the early 90s, you know, bow hunting, and PSC was the bow. That was yeah. the you had to be with a cool guy. When you came to hunt camp with us, almost everybody had a PSC. Yeah. And if you did, it you a little bit. And I saw a deterioration in the brand image over the years. And I kept shooting PSC because I knew what the product would do. I, st- I knew they made good product. They just needed to get the message out better. And it got frustrating as a rep to hear it and see it and not be given a fair shake. Yeah. Just because our marketing wasn't doing exactly what it needed to do. So it's nice to see it. And, yeah, I mean, I I go on Instagram and 
TikTok and that and check and see. And it's nice to see PSD out there in a different light now. Absolutely. We're selling more high-end product than we have since I've been with this company. And that's the goal. We are top shelf. Yeah. You can tell me differently and you can't prove us differently. We'll we'll match up against anybody. I I agree with that. I mean, when I heard, you know, for about 10 years span, you heard someone shooting at PSD, you're like, kind of gave him that look like you sh- why'd you get that was it on yeah. sale but now it's like i i don't i don't know how many bows i've given or bought for people that are i only tell them psc and what's great is like there's just the whole wide range of bows i got a bow for my son my wife the beginner guy that doesn't want to spend all the money but then you got the guy that wants to spend all the money that there's that too and it's all yeah. high-end quality stuff it's got it all well, it's one thing that Pete Shepley has always preached. I want to make a bow for every man. Yeah. And going to do that, you have to have it in every price point. I mean, our stinger, which is our entry level bow, it, it'll do everything it needs to do. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles, but it's affordable. If that's what you want to spend. So it's important to us to make sure we have quality all throughout the line. So, I think we have the best bow at every price point in the spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, I think you know, you. something and that and that comes from Pete Shepley. He's always he is he's still here. He will you know, he he is in the office at seven in the morning and doesn't leave till three thirty or four. And sometimes every- you want him to leave. You're like, <laughs> Pete, let us do our job here. Just kidding. You know, he gets in those moods every once in a while because he wants perfection, and I get it. Yeah. And he wants tomorrow, and sometimes it takes a little bit longer than a day. But, uh, you know, look, I, I remember in the early 90s when we'd be at a hunt camp, and PSC was the bow. And we'd be sitting around the fire, and people would talk about, man, it would be cool to hunt with Pete Shepley. I get to I get to hang out with the man every day. He's got a he lot of stories. He's right next door to me. He comes in every morning. Uh, we start with coffee and we grade it whether it's good or bad, and um, we have conversations. And it's not just business. We do talk about you know his life and how he's flown aerobatic planes and he's hunted all over the world. And he is very interesting. And he's he's lived the life of twenty people. It's amazing the things he's done and the things he's brought to archery. People don't realize Pete Shepley's the first one that came out with a D loop. Oh yeah. I mean, you know, we're talking about a guy that, that that was an engineer that worked on the stinger missile program, took a chance to start an archery company. And that's 52 years ago. And we're still here today. Tough company that's 52 years old is it's quite an accomplishment. I mean, just run, running, you see businesses, and the main thing I say is what, you know, you have a great product right now. What are you going to do so that you continue to have a great product? And it's so hard with the innovation that you guys have to have, but every year there is something. You guys put a twist on it and make it a little bit better. It's like being Charlie going into the chocolate factory. I mean, that's how I feel when I go back there with our engineering team, and they're like, hey, I'm working on this project you got to check it out because we're always, 
I've got the best engineers in the business by far. Hands down, not even close. It's not an argument. These guys are unbelievable. It's like we are the only U.S. manufacturer that makes our carbon bow in-house. Yeah. From scratch, we make carbon risers right here in Tucson. I've tried sat, to explain sat to people. And yeah. Happen, yeah. Try to explain to people that process. I'm like, it is unreal. Yeah, it's it's a labor of love. I mean, it's not easy what what they do back there. And to be honest, what you guys charge for it. Well, I, I mean, there's look. It takes a long time to lay, to hand lay up a riser. They yeah. are heated up by hand. Each one is a work of art. It is, and it's yeah. it's it's great to be part of the process to be able to go back there and watch it from start to finish. And we're very proud of what we've done with our carbon program. See, we used to get our carbon bows from a our carbon risers from a company in in Utah. Um, we worked with them. Our engineers helped design it. We did that. And then in 2019, because of delivery issues, and hey, they were a good partner, but we're like, we know how to do this. Let's bring it in-house and let's do it right here at, at PSC. Not just, in the, and not just in the U.S., but let's do it under our roof. And you have the and facility to do it. That's the biggest well, thing. You have the, we have the size of a room that's, you know, a size of a bedroom in a small house with a guy cutting carbon with a pair, pair of scissors. That's how it started. And That's that crazy. was about around February of 2019. They started the project when I was brought over. And to see what it's morphed into, and pretty proud of what we do there. Yeah. What's, uh, what's the future hold there for you guys? More carbon. You're going to go more carbon. You're going to go hard in the paint. You know, I carbon, carbon bows, once, it's hard to explain, but I, I get a lot of friends that are like, what bow should I get? And I'm like, carbon? Yeah, I know. Get That's a, what I, me and Cody called and said, hey, um, we want the carbon ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Once you start hunting with carbon and the advantages of it, it's especially when we can keep the mass weight down and you add the weight in the right places and you can have a bow that is a pound and a half, two pounds lighter than what a competitor's brand would be. Now, it doesn't sound like a lot until you're mile 10 in a canyon and you've been hiking all day, spotting and stalking, and you're wore out. Yeah, for sure. You'll notice that pound and a half, two pounds. I promise. So once you start, Hunting with a carbon, with a PSC carbon, you're going to keep hunting with a PSC carbon. I mean, I could shoot any of our bows. Yeah. And I like the aluminum. They are awesome. They mm-hmm. shoot well. I have no issues with, with how they shoot. But I've been hunting with carbon since we came out with them, with the original Carbon Air. The Stealth? Is it the Stealth? No, the original one was the Carbon, carbon Air. Air. Yeah. Carbon Air. Yeah. And then it went to the stealth, and now we're the third generation of the riser with the mock style riser, which is the levitate, but levitate, we use yeah. different yeah. layups for it. Uh, once you start hunting with it, and you see the advantages of having a little lighter bow, especially out west here, yeah. it's, it's a big deal. And it's, when it's cold, and it does get cold out here, just like it does in the Midwest and the East. I don't have a problem grabbing that carbon bow with no with no glove on when it's freezing temperatures. 
It's true. It doesn't get, I mean, it's warm to the touch. And a carbon riser is much more rigid than what an aluminum riser is. There's less flex in it. That's always been interesting to me, and that's kind of the idea behind a, a carbon r- barrel on a gun is you don't have as much flex, even in the guns, you know. It's it's amazing, but Brock, next time you and Cody are here, I'll show you in a machine where we measure how much flex is in the riser. And you'll be shocked at how that light piece of carbon has less flex than the aluminum does. That's crazy. It's not. Just tell us when we'll be there. Every one of our our carbon risers before we build the bow is tested up to 700 pounds of pressure. Jeez. Jeez. We put it in a hydraulic press to make sure the structural integrity is there. If it passes 700 pounds, it can get shipped. You know, that's a bow that's like a 140-pound bow. So, yeah, it should, it, it's going to be fine. It'll be great. It'll be just fine. You can, <laughs> this is the one you can run over with the truck and you can still shoot it. i tell you what is fun. Every once in a while, when we take a bow, and usually it's an aluminum or a cast riser, and we take it to catastrophic failure in the hydraulic press. Oh, it, uh, you watch it come apart. Some year, I'll show you some of the aftermath of some of that stuff. But it's, you'd be shocked at, at how strong these bows are. Whether it's aluminum, cast, the carbon riser, we ta- we'll take some of them, take them to catastrophic failure, and it's, uh, it's a lot of weight it takes to break those risers. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear that you guys are really going going for it. And, I mean, every year there's something new. It seems like sales, I don't know if it's true. I mean, are sales up every year since 2019? Yes, uh, and especially in the high end. And that's where you really want to grow your markets, the high end, I'm guessing. Well, it's where we were weakest. When I was a rep, I could sell a ton of products, and I sold my fair share of high-end products. But, you know, we, and like I said, we make great bows across the entire spectrum. But, you know, it's, I get, I, I wouldn't get upset because I, it was part of PSE's problem. We, we need to do a better job of driving more people to the dealer store and asking for a PSE. That is on corporate. We need to do a better job of it. We're doing better than we were, but we have a lot of room to grow. But it was frustrating to go into a shop that would sell a lot of high-end bows, and they'd sell a few PSDs here and there, but they'd order a bunch of the price point bows from me. And and, and it was frustrating because I knew our product was as good as the competitors. But for whatever reason, it had that uh, stigma to it where, you know, they just, you know, whatever it was, you know. Well, and, that, and that's on us at Corporate. We need to do a better job of telling our story and showing people who we are and what we're about and why we make the best high-end bows out there. You know, when I saw you guys, you guys' uh, factory, it, it, I saw how you guys built your strings. I saw every little process, and it confirmed to me what I've been hearing from everybody else is this stuff is legit. You can't get any more precision. When it says PSE, precision shooting equipment, like that's, I believe that. Well, I I appreciate that, Brock, because we really, we try our hardest every day to make the best bows we can. It's yeah. really a cool, cool process when you go down and you watch from the beginning to the end and you see one start and then you see it 
put in a box to ship and it's kind of everything done right there and made right there and it's pretty sweet see all those people working hard like that's right yeah it's a great it's a great group of people that we have here it's it's my family i mean i spend as much you know i spend a lot of time here these these are family members to me. It's important to me that we make the right decisions on the corporate level because a lot of people's livelihoods depend on it. And I don't take that lightly. No, I, that's a good way to put it because so many times people make these selfish decisions up in the hierarchy of the business that are very selfish and they don't put, like, I'm not making this decision for myself. I have 50 other families here that I'm making it for too. So if I go drinking and driving or if I do something dumb on the outside, that's going to affect everybody here. Yeah. You know, I'm not just affecting my own family. I'm affecting, you know, potentially hundreds of people. But that- yeah. It's, it's humbling. It, yeah. It decisions, making decisions at the higher level, you've got to factor everybody into the decision. Yeah. And the nice thing is here is, are there egos? Of course there's egos. But we all put our egos aside, and we always try to do what's best for the brand across the board. Uh, whether it's the string department, the carbon department, whatever, everybody here puts their personal opinions and their egos aside, and we're all working toward a common goal. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. That's why you're successful, too, so... Well, that's why you—that's why you're in the position you're at. Well, I couldn't do it without my team, man. They—they're the ones that deserve all the accolades, for sure. It's pretty cool, man. Well, um, Lonnie, Lonnie, let me ask you a question oh. real quick, Lonnie. Uh, so on the on the bow side, so I've got the uh, oh, which one is it? The uh, NTN. NTN. Sorry, drawing a blank. You know, you sent me limbs for it, right? The eighty pound limbs, right? What would cause um, that bow to not be any faster? Would it cables? So I I was at uh, I had the seventy pound limbs on before they were at about the bow was at sixty eight pounds it wouldn't go any more than that at the time so we put the eighty pound limbs on and it's sitting at eighty two pounds right now and I didn't have to change my sight I haven't tested the speed or anything but. Are you using the same arrows? Same arrows. The arrows same. Same, arrow, same arrows. Yeah. Something's out of tune with that bow. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Okay. Yeah. So, I think, you know, I need to know how you did your limb orientation. I took it to a place and they did the limbs. I didn't want to mess with it because I didn't want to put them on wrong. <laughs> well, maybe we need to come maybe out and visit and uh, bring it in. Bring it in. We'll take a look at it, but. Yeah, there's something amiss on it. It's kind of hard without me being there to look at it. Right. But something yeah. okay. is way black because uh, you're talking 14 pounds more. Right. Uh, you should be getting significantly faster speeds out of it. Yeah, yeah. I've got, I'm shooting a 300 grain arrow or a, a 300 spine with, uh, I think it's like right at like 500, like 504 or something weight. Um, we'll get it. If, if bring it in, we'll look at it. I can have the engineers play around with it. We'll get the speed it should get out of it. Hey, what uh, Sweet. you think a a bow for your for Mother's Day would probably be a really good gift, don't you think? Mother's Day right around the corner for the guys out there. 
What a better Just gift than a better, You better hurry gift. up. <laughs> hey, uh, yes. And there are more and more women getting into this sport. Hey, it's a great They're activity good at to your wife. You know, like, yeah. it, it's fun. It gets you outside. And then those 3D tournaments, they're fun to bring the wife, get outside, and sometimes they're better than you. And then <laughs> you just got to own it. You just got to wear it, practice a little women, more. When it comes to hunting, women are stone cold killers. They yes, really are. They are killers. Uh, they're also easier to teach, Brock. So when, when, when I was weird. around, sometimes I would work with women and kids and, and adult men. Women are very open to what you tell them to do. They will listen. And they, it's amazing. And I'm not the only one that says this in the industry. Um, they just learn better. They, they don't have that machismo factor going, I guess. The ego. They don't actually listen, and they don't take offense to what you tell them. Kids are the same way, but I always found it easier to teach a woman how to shoot a bow right off the bat than a guy. Yeah, Don't know what. This is a good example of that. So we went with the. So the first year we took my business partner Brad to the tack. He had a bow built by John Dudley, right? I forget right. which bow, yeah, but he's he's got one. He's shooting it, and I'm like, dude, what pin are you using? <laughs> he's like, I'm using this pin, and I'm like, because he just keeps shooting under it, under it, under it, and then. I'm like, dude, so, like, like, are you lining this little hole, the peep? What's that? <laughs> like, <laughs> the hole right here, you look through it, you know, so we're teaching. He's like, oh, before we, the, his exact words were, I'm not stupid, guys. I'm like, okay, oh, yeah. we're not saying you're stupid. Just, we're going to want you to look through here, look through there. And then he did, he's like, done, bullseye, bullseye. And then, so the following year. Me and my cousin, we pull him aside and we're like, hey, do you need to like, you haven't shot for a year. You only shoot it once a year at the tech. Like, do you need us to go over a couple things here before you start shooting? He's like, I'm not an idiot, guys. <laughs> and he starts launching it over the target. Just boom, boom, just launching it. that part again, huh? I'm like, dude, which, which pin are you using? I'm using the bottom one. The bottom one at 20. <laughs> so he's putting that's the for 60, 60. 60 yeah. yard he's launched I'm like no it's the top one. Oh yeah uh, I'm like eh. yeah I can see the guys get machismo in there and getting their ego involved and well and, and here's another thing Brock a lot of a lot of men when they first get started they're over bows they feel like they have to oh, I'm gonna buy that 70 pound bow they're, they're new to shooting and they're they're over they're over bowed. yeah. And gotcha. Fight get back and everything, and you know they're not comfortable. I always worked with new people. I always tried to get them to shoot the right poundage. I'm like, you need to be comfortable. You need to be able to shoot this for an hour at the range and not get fatigued. I always told people, you put the boat down when you get fatigued because you're just going to develop bad habits. I agree with that. <laughs> women, I never had problems when I was working with newbies. For women to want to overbow, usually yeah. they did the exact opposite. They were pulling probably five or ten pounds less than they could pull pretty yes. easily. So they seemed to, to really focus on their form because they weren't fighting to get the bow back. You know, so yeah. I've seen some people pull. 
pull Bo back, oh. and you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> somebody's gonna Look, die right I, now. I know people that have, that kill elk with forty pound bows. I know some women that stone cold killers of forty pound bows. And I'm not saying that you, if you can shoot eighty pounds, you're comfortable doing it. You can do it for an hour at the range. Shoot an eighty pound bow. I don't care what poundage you shoot. Shoot what you're comfortable with. Because shot placement's real important, and being comfortable in the shot. Yeah. And I think when I worked with newbies, guys would always try to overbow by five pounds or more, and women would underbow by five. And the women, you know, seemed to have better form. Outshot them, yeah. So uh, I, yeah, I shoot this six, uh, this bow sixty four pounds for target. Yes, I can shoot the thing all day long. You know, you never you don't get sore. You know, you're not you're not smoked by the end of it, and it's it's just as fast. I think you know. Um, yeah, but it's kind of cool. I um I got a story about that. My first elk hunt with a bow. I mean, I had shot so much. Probably the most I've ever shot in a year was that year because it was the year I learned how to shoot, and then I just fell in love with it. It was every day I was shooting 100 arrows. and So, I mean, I was ready to go on this elk hunt. First elk that I see, I get up there, and we just hiked up two straight miles straight up on the peaks, and so we're up over 10,000 feet. I'm smoked. Never, ever thought about this. I go to pull my bow back. I'm so fatigued. I couldn't pull my bow back. <laughs> Yeah, I was like shaking. I've never felt that before. It was so new to me to even think to get fatigued. How you won't be able to pull your bow back? Never happened again. Have you ever sat in sub freezing weather for six or seven hours and then have to draw your bow back? I've never done that. It's awful. It doesn't work really well. You're, you're all stoved up and you can barely move your arms. And yeah, when I when I hunt in really really cold weather. Especially when I got when I used to go back east, even though out west I was using about seventy two, seventy three pounds. When I go back east, uh, hunting whitetail, I'm taking my sixty pound bow with me. Yeah, that's true. That's a good good point right there. Never well, thought about. I, I don't know if this is scientifically true or not, but I've heard <laughs> that once you get below freezing, you lose about twenty five percent of your muscle capacity. So if you're fighting a 70-pound bow to get it back when it's warm, what's going to happen when it's 28 degrees out? Yeah, right. Yeah, you're not warmed up. It's not going to go The muscles crazy. aren't warm. Yeah. Oh, no. And it, sometimes it even hurts afterward. Your shoulder's killing you. So, yeah, I try. Even when I'm sitting water, I mean, I can shoot 80. But when, when I'm elk hunting, it's uh, last year I shot 72 pounds. Mm-hmm. This year, you're older. I might go to 65. I don't know. Well, Lonnie, man, it's been an hour and a half already. Jeez. Yeah, time, time did go pretty fast. So We really appreciate you coming on. You know, we're probably going to no. we're gonna need to have you come on at the end of the year when you tell us about your some your elk hunt. Yeah. yeah. I've got an elk hunt in Colorado this year, so we'll Late see how season? Early? No, I'm going to get to hunt them early season for a change. Nice. Well, good for you, man. You deserve it. Anyone that sits yeah. 14 days straight at water to hunt elk, you deserve 13. this. Yeah. No. You deserve 13. it, It's pneumonia, boys. I was, uh. Jeez. Uh, look, it, when you're sitting water, it's, if you've never tried it, try it sometimes. It is, uh, it can be very successful, especially late season if you're elk hunting and there's a lot of fresh sign and you know they're in there. Be patient. They'll come in. They'll make a mistake. You know, just, always, just, drop, my, just drop me a pen to where that location's. 
yeah. You know, I uh, I killed my biggest uh, coos whitetail sitting water. Yeah. And I'll tell you, the boring, most boring hunt I've ever been on. <laughs> Until the end. It Until the changed end. so fast when it came in, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, I'd been seeing deer just when you see the right deer. You're like, oh, yeah. oh, there it is. And then you don't get a lot of time. It's like, you got to go. Because they ain't going to hang out that long. Well, see, I get, when I'm sitting in a blind or in a tree stand, when I hear animals coming in and I know it's an elk or deer, my heart's beating out of my body. Yeah. Because I don't know what's coming in. It's that anticipation. Now, once I see that it's a, a bull elk or a coos buck or a mule buck, I calm down. But that, 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 that unknown right before, it's like my heart's going to just blast out of my body. It's crazy. Yeah. Do you, are you going to get to settle down because it's just a cow or a small buck? Or is it, yeah. is it the one? And I'm always afraid I'm not going to settle down. Somehow I do. I've done it enough where I do settle down. But in buck fever, bull fever, it's real, man. It's totally it's legit. A, People, the wheels come so off, legit. dude. But that's one thing about spotting and stalking, though. If you spend, say, three or four hours. I mean, I spent one time, I glassed up a buck at 7 a.m. I shot him at 2 p.m. I mean, it took us forever to get on that buck. He was with some dough. Yeah, I had all day to get the nerves out of me. So, you know, I executed the shot. I didn't get nervous. But when I'm when it happens really fast, when I'm sitting, yeah, that's when I get right before when I can hear him coming in. That's when I just it just the adrenaline just kicks into overdrive. Yeah, I, I see that, especially don't know what it is when you're spawn stalking, well, you know exactly what it is. You well, just, and then when you make a shot, you're like, then I start like convulsions i'm like shaking and i'm like geez because you know you're like i'm gonna take my time i'm gonna settle the pin i'm gonna pull through i'm not gonna punch make sure that the bubble centered all this is going through your mind you get the full draw and all of a sudden the arrow's flying you're like uh, well, what, what did i do what just happened i thought i was gonna take Tell my time I'm not <laughs> i forgot to range that thing how far was that <laughs> yeah oh man uh, there's we've all, oh. been, we've all been there Yes, we could. There's stories. That's another couple hours in itself. <laughs> Anything that can go wrong will go wrong at some point during your bow hunting career. And every year, you're like, I'm going to learn to never do that again. <laughs> and, do it again. <laughs> and then the next year, something else new. Every year, something new. I won't do that again. Wait, yeah. what, why does all this stuff always do? <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe I forgot. Well, here's the problem, Brock. I'm going to be 85. I'm still going to be bow hunting. If, if God allows it, oh, and I'm still going to say that, uh, I'll, I'll still be learning a new lesson every year. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate you coming on, Lonnie. Lonnie Workman, if you're interested in bows, you got to check out PSC. Our buddy John Dudley, we, pre- we actually talk about you guys a lot on here, Lonnie. So they, our listeners know about PSC and, mm-hmm. you know, to go buy a Dudley bow. And then if they well, want so. and then, I you know. You guys do. So we well, we're, gonna, we're gonna have to come down and see you pretty soon. Yeah, I'm gonna have to get Pete on here. Yeah, I haven't been down. But we're gonna yeah. need an extra Some SD Pete card stories. for Pete. If we get well, Pete on, we're gonna talk- need a couple SD cards. Yeah, let me know. <laughs> just talk to Pete. He'll be more than happy. He I he likes he will. He likes the 
talk about the business. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's good at it, too. He's got some great stories. Yes, he does. Well, you take care, Pete. And That's Lonnie. Lonnie, sorry. <laughs> I started thinking about Pete and flying helicopters. That's what I started thinking yeah, about. There you go. So, um, Lonnie, let's uh, do this after your elk hunt. Let's get a call going. All right. You guys have a good evening. Appreciate Thanks you, buddy. Thanks, right. Lonnie. Take we'll care. see you later, bud. Bye. Bye. Well, everybody, that was Lonnie Workman, PSE. Check him out. That's our our whole uh, tech of the week. That would be PSE, I guess. That's it. Um, the bows work. I saw my friend over here shoot a duck with one. <laughs> it was, That's right. He and he he cooked it. I did. He cooked it. So cooked it, ate it, ate it. Cook and ate it. So hit him they, with a field tip. Yeah, field tip. <laughs> Smoked them. So they work, everybody. They and that work. was that was the old uh, the target one. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, appreciate that's it. Sick. Take care, guys. All right, everybody. Later.